0: Would you go with me to John's Gospel in chapter 17? John chapter 17. This morning, as we enter chapter 17 of John's Gospel today, we come to what has been called the High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. It is a a wonderful prayer, a great prayer of our Lord's. It is, in fact, the longest prayer of Christ that we have recorded for us in the inspired Word of God. I think it's interesting that the prayer we typically call the, uh, the Lord's Prayer um, in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, the Lord's Prayer, you know that prayer that we commonly we call, commonly call it the Lord's Prayer. You may have heard it called the Disciples' Prayer before because, in fact, Jesus didn't pray the Lord's Prayer. He, he gave it to the disciples. He said, this is how you pray. And he told them how they were to pray, but he didn't actually pray the Lord's Prayer what we call the Lord's Prayer. That was for the disciples. That was for those who would be his disciples. In fact, John chapter 17 is really the Lord's Prayer. This is his prayer. This is uh, the most detailed prayer we have of Jesus Christ. Of course, we don't call it the Lord's Prayer. We call it his high priestly prayer. And it is that. It is a magnificent prayer. But that prayer he gave to the disciples and those who would be his disciples, those... That we might call the disciples' prayer. This one we ought to call the Lord's Prayer, I think. The prayer that we have here in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, is a wonderful prayer, and it teaches us so much. This prayer teaches us much about the importance of prayer. It teaches us much about the content of prayer. It It teaches us much about our faith as we pray, as we... Follow the the prayer of Jesus. We'll learn these kinds of things in in our time today and in the coming weeks. We're going to begin this morning with the first five verses of this prayer, which makes up all of chapter 17. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 5 in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, pointing back to chapter 16, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So right away, as we begin to read these few verses, right away, you can see here, that this is a prayer which Jesus was praying for himself. But as I say that, don't think this was, you shouldn't think that this was a selfish prayer, okay? Jesus didn't have a selfish bone in his body, as they say, right? He's really the only one we can really say that about. (laughs) This is not a selfish prayer. This is about himself, but it is not about himself. sounds interesting, doesn't it? It's about himself, but it's not about himself. I I saw in my studies this week a sermon that someone had titled, The the Prayer Jesus Prayed About God's Son. Of course, Jesus being God's son, right? The prayer he prayed about himself. Note how this prayer begins in verse 1. Listen to verse 1 again and look at it. When Jesus had spoken these words... Again, pointing back to what we've studied in chapter 15 and chapter 16, actually back to chapter 14, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Now remember that as we left chapter 16, that Jesus had told his disciples to not lose heart. To not lose heart. Some, when, when they read this passage, they think this is a mournful and sorrowful prayer. This is not a sad prayer. This is a happy prayer. This is a joy filled prayer. This is a rejoicing prayer. And I say that because of what we saw at the close of chapter 16. Go back to chapter 16 for a minute, right? Look at verse 33, the, the end of chapter 16 and verse 33. This is not a mournful and sorrowful and sad prayer and it, by any stretch. Why? Because of what we see in verse 33, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then we go to chapter 17. Sometimes we need to remove those numbers so they don't confuse us and keep reading, right? And then Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This is not a sad and sorrowful prayer. This This is a prayer of victory. Why? Because he just told the disciples, don't lose heart, I have overcome the world. You can't hear anything better than that. You may think you can, but you can't hear anything better than that. Jesus Christ has overcome the world, And now we get to chapter 17 from verse 33 in chapter 16, and Jesus begins this wonderful and powerful prayer, and he begins with these words, Father, the hour has come. Now, what's he talking about? What is the hour? What hour is this? Well, it's the appointed time of his death. Who appointed the time? The Father, right? I mean, Jesus is obeying the Father, and he... Yields to the Father. Even in this prayer, he says, Father, the hour has come. And he's yielding to the Father's timing. It's the appointed time of his death, but it's really actually more than his death. It's also, we think of the death of Christ, and that's a sad thing to think about, but it's also something that brings great rejoicing when we realize the purpose of his death, right? The purpose of Jesus' death was actually a sacrifice for sin, And that is just how Jesus has overcome the world. Think of it. He's gone to the cross, he's gone to Calvary, and he's suffered for your sins. He suffered for my sins. He took the burden of our sins on himself. He took the punishment for our sins on himself. And that is how Jesus Christ overcomes the world. So when we think about chapter 16, he's talking about overcoming the world and he's overcoming death and satan and hell and and sin and how does he overcome them he overcomes them by his sacrifice for sin by his death and so when he talks about overcoming the world he's actually looking forward to something that has actually hasn't happened yet it's the it's the crucifixion right it's the cross he's looking ahead to the cross So what we have here when we begin studying this wonderful prayer of Christ is not a sad and mournful prayer as some read it, but it is a very forward-looking and joy-filled prayer because He's overcome the world as He looks forward to the cross. Why is this a joy-filled prayer? Well, because He's going to be the sacrifice. And He's been obeying the Father. I mean, His whole work, everything everything he's done on earth has been out of obedience to the Father. And so he's in a way, he's looking back and he's looking forward. He's looking back over all of the steps of obedience he's taken to the, taken to the Father and in all of his miracles and those healings and the, and the teaching of doctrine and truth. And so this is a very special, very forward-looking and joy-filled prayer in which Jesus prays for himself, but not a selfish prayer in the slightest. Now let's note, what it is that Jesus prays for himself. We see it beginning in verse 1, where Jesus prays, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus is looking to the cross here. The cross is the purpose for which Jesus came. And he came because it was the Father's will. And when he accomplished the the will of the Father, becoming the sacrifice for sins on the cross, he would be glorified by the Father. He would be glorified by the Father, and by his obedience, he would glorify the Father. By his obedience. So, this is a prayer which Jesus prayed that God's will would be accomplished. And what Jesus prays for himself here is a really good pointer to how Christ's followers ought to pray, also. How are we to pray? We learn much from God's word about how we pray, but there's some wonderful markers here to truth and wonderful pointers here to truth in Jesus' prayer about how we're to pray. How are we to pray? Are we to pray for selfish reasons? Are we to pray that God would bless us with riches and and happiness and peace and tranquility so that we might be satisfied and and comfortable and, and to live wonderful lives here on earth? Is that how we're to pray? Is that how God's Word teaches us to pray? Yes? No? It's not, is it? Aren't we to pray with the purpose of our prayers being that in the answers God gives, that He would be glorified? Isn't that how we're supposed to pray? And that's what God's Word teaches. When you really dig into the Word and think about what the Word teaches us about prayer, we, we learn this, that we're to pray with the motive of being God's glory. God's going to answer prayers as we pray in obedience to Him and according to His will, and we ought to want to pray so that when He answers, we see Him glorified in the answer. Now, that's not how we often pray, is it? That's why I can confidently say Jesus is the only one without a selfish bone in his body because we're selfish, and we often pray thinking, um, you know, I really need this, God, and I want you to help me here and make me comfortable and happy and satisfied. And Right? We could go on and on. But we're to pray for God's glory to be shown in the answers to our prayers. That's really to be the heart of our praying. And God is glorified by that even when we pray that way. Remember, Jesus had just finished teaching the disciples at length about the Holy Spirit, right? He'd just been encouraging them about the help that they would receive, the encouragement that they would receive, the courage they would receive by the Helper, from the Helper, by the Holy Spirit. We saw it in chapter 16. Jesus dealt with a matter of prayer. He he taught the disciples that they they would ask the Father and pray in whose name? In Jesus' name, right? So they would pray and they would ask the Father and they would pray in Jesus' name by the authority that Jesus gives them as children of God. And they would ask the Father in prayer and it means, of course, of praying according to Jesus' name is praying according to God's will. We pray according to Jesus' name. We say, I want Jesus to be glorified. I want you to be glorified, God. And He answer to my prayers and I'm praying according to your will in Jesus' name. And when the Father answers those prayers, God's children will know full joy. That's what we heard back in chapter 16. Your joy will be full, and no one can take your joy. Because as you pray according to my will, God the Father answers those prayers. And you'll know. As you see the answers to prayers, you will know full joy. You see why it's so important to pray in Jesus' name, according to God's will, so that we might know real and full joy that no one can take from us. But to have those answered prayers and full joy, they must pray according to God's will. So Jesus had given them this wonderful teaching and these wonderful doctrines that would sustain them when they followed them, but he doesn't stop there after teaching them the truth to be obeyed. Here in chapter 17, he he shows them what it is to pray according to God's will. He says, Father, my time has come according to your will. Help me glorify you as you glorify the Son. You see, Jesus gives them a wonderful example, gives us a wonderful example. He doesn't stop at the teaching. He doesn't stop at the doctrine. He shows them what it is to pray according to God's will. He doesn't stop there after the wonderful teaching that we've seen in these previous weeks, but he proceeds in yielding himself to the Father's will. And he shows them by this prayer that they too, if they're to see the blessing of the Lord on the work that they perform for his glory, they too must pray, and they too must pray in such a way as not to be thinking of their own comfort, but they must pray with the same attitude with which Christ prayed. Christ prayed, glorify your Son. That's not a selfish prayer when you think about that. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And how is Jesus glorified? He's glorified incredibly on the cross by his obedience, by his sacrifice for sinners, by going to the cross. His obedience would glorify the Father, and Jesus would be glorified. In turn, as he suffers for sinners, we got a note here that just as Jesus prayed with this forward looking joy, this forward looking joy that was his because he knew he had overcome the world by his obedience, he had overcome sin and hell and Satan and death. We had a note here that as he walked in obedience to the Father's will, we learn that there's an incentive here for us to pray with faith and joy as he did. What's the incentive? Well, we've learned that those who are faithful to follow Christ will face trials and troubles and tribulation, right? That's not the incentive. (laughs) We don't look forward to those, right? Right? But we heard Jesus say so in chapter 16, but because Jesus was obedient even unto death on the cross, and we know that by his death and resurrection he overcomes sin and death and hell, he overcomes the world, because of this, we too can take heart. Because Jesus is victorious, so are we. Those who are Christ are victorious because he's victorious. And we can take heart, and we can pray with what? With faith. And we can pray with joy, even in the midst of severe trials and difficulties. Why? Because we know that even as Christ suffered on earth, it was according to God's plan. It was according to God's purpose. It was according to God's will. And by this, God is glorified. And by this, the Son is glorified. And by this... Sinners are saved, right? When they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Sinners are saved. There's another reason for faith and joy as we pray, for God's will to be done and for God's glory to be shown, even as we face hardship and trials because we're God's children. And the reason we can pray with faith and joy in the midst of trouble is because God is in control. Think of it. Do you think you'd be able to pray with faith if you thought God was weak? If he was out of control and he couldn't do anything about your circumstances, why would you even pray? You see, we can pray with faith and joy because we can know for certain that God is in control. Look at verse 2 as Jesus continues his prayer saying, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's a lot going on here, but it doesn't involve us doing anything. It's all God. Do you see it? In verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh. Who gives Jesus Christ authority over all flesh to, to give eternal life? God does. Not us. We don't give Jesus the okay. Okay, Jesus, save me. Oh, no. We trust in him, but God gives him that power. God gives him that authority. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to whom? To all those who believe? Well, we know that's true, right? But it doesn't say that, does it? To all those who you, whom you have given him, that's God. That's not us. Who's in control here, you or me or, or God? You and me, are we in control? It's God who's in control here, right? And this is a wonderful reminder for us as we go to God in prayer. Who's in control? Sometimes we think we're in control, and we're wrong. We find out later when it doesn't go as we planned. By what act, think, by what act does Jesus give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him for salvation? It's by, it's by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because it's by his death he bears the punishment for our sins. Now some look at the cross and they see defeat. Some look at the cross and see shame and agony. I'm reading an interesting, a fictional book right now that talks about a time in the future when, and I'm guessing it's after like nuclear wars have demolished the earth and there's a few people who remain and they're living like primitives now and they're finding portions of the Old Testament. They can't find the New Testament. And they find a cross and they think this must have something to do with this religion and they, they understand from the Old Testament there's one true God, and they believe in him, but they want the New Testament they know of, but they can't find. They find the cross, and then later they find a cross with a, that's actually a crucifix with Jesus still hanging on the cross. And they realize, wait a minute, this one they thought would be the reigning king must be the suffering servant. Well, he's both. They're going to find it out when they get the New Testament, right? He's the suffering servant and the reigning king because he's victorious over sin and hell and death. Because some look at the cross and they see defeat. If they only found the little cross with Jesus still hanging on the cross, that's why when when we depict a cross, you're not going to see Jesus on the cross because he's not there anymore. He's risen from the dead and he reigns victorious forevermore, right? But it is a reminder when you think of the suffering that Jesus Christ went through that some people look at the cross as defeat that he died there, story over. No, he did die there. But in three days, he rose again. He paid the penalty for our sin. He couldn't have paid the penalty for our sin if he remained dead. He was the sinless one, the perfect one of God, the one who did not deserve to die but died in our stead and rose again and lives today. And it's a wonderful reminder that God is in control. Yes? And because God is in control, we pray. You do pray, right? (laughs) Because God is in control, we can pray with faith and joy and hope. And because his timing is perfect, whether we like it or not, right? We know that feeling. Anytime now, God, please answer this prayer. Because you know I need this right now. And God's like, you just don't see the big picture. You're going to learn something here. Trust me. You see, the timing he uses isn't ours, and the answers he gives aren't the ones that we thought we we should have. Why? Because God is sovereign. Thank the Lord. God is in control. Because if we were in control, well, just take a look at the world. (laughs) Right? Just take a look at the world, and the thing says, go ahead. God says, go ahead. Just do what you want and see what happens. But even in that, God is still in control. Even in our foolishness, God says, no, no, you may be making foolish choices, but I can use those foolish choices for my glory to accomplish my purposes. That's how powerful God is, that though we go around foolishly doing the things that we think are right when they're wrong, God takes our wrong and makes them right. I mean, who among us would send Jesus to the cross? Would you? Would you? I mean, I don't think you're going to say yes. I'm not going to say yes. I don't think we would have chosen Jesus Christ and sent him to the cross. Send Jesus Christ to the cross, that'll fix it all. But in God's sovereignty, that was God's answer. God, in his sovereignty, chose the cross. Chose to send to the cross his sinless son to be punished for your sins and mine. We hear it in Romans 3 verses 23 through 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Propitiation is a wonderful word that may not bring an understanding to your mind. When you hear propitiation, you need to understand it is the satisfying of God's wrath by the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, his sinless son. So what some see as defeat at the cross... In God's wisdom, he saw the cross as victory, and so it is, because though the cross was death for Christ, it is eternal life for all who believe in him. And because God is in control, we can pray. And we can pray with joy and faith. And that's just where Jesus goes next, because... Because all have eternal life who have faith in him, Jesus says next in his prayer, verse 3, it's like a definition of eternal life. Look at verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So here we learn that eternal life is far more than living life forever, or living for eternity it's knowing eternal life is knowing the only true god and jesus christ whom he sent you've got to have both <laughs> and you don't really know god until you know the son and if we know the son if we believe in the son we're forgiven our sins but before we come to know christ and the father we're trapped and we're dead in our sins we are like I often think of this as kind of a, a strange way to put it, but we're like walking dead people because that's what God's Word says of us before Christ. Before we trust in Christ, Paul says to the Ephesians in, in chapter 2 and verse 1 of Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There's the walking dead people, Right? Following what? Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. The most precious two, three-letter words in the Bible, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And all God's people said, Amen. And because of this wonderful work of God through Christ, we know him. And we know God the Father. And we know God the Son. To know the only true God, to trust in Christ, as Jesus says in verse 3, is to have what? It is to have eternal life. And it is to be made alive together with Christ, praise God. And according to Romans 6 4, all who believe walk in newness of life, no longer. Walking dead people, <laughs> living people, walking with Christ, and that saving work of Christ at Calvary is just how he has glorified the Father. Note that in verse four that's what Jesus is pointing to, even though he's not yet crucified for sinners, he's looking back on all the all that he's accomplished out of obedience to the Father by his obedience he's gone and and fed people and taught them wonderful doctrine and truth and healed and raised people from the dead. He's looking back on those accomplishments, but he's also looking forward to the cross when he says in verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He is very close to being crucified for our sins, and he includes that. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. You see, all that Christ did on earth brought glory to the Father, his teaching, his working of miracles, and then since his hour has come, as we heard him say in verse 1, now the cross. So Jesus prays, verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Don't believe anyone who says Jesus wasn't there before creation. That like Jesus is one of God's angels or something, or one of God's, you know. Uh -uh. Jesus was there before the beginning. So now again, as in verse 1, Jesus asked the Father to glorify him, and again he's looking to the cross, and this was his purpose in coming to walk the earth, that he might walk this earth in obedience to the Father all the way to the cross. And we see here how Jesus recalls the glory that he had, that he had enjoyed with the Father before creation, before time begins as we know it, in a very clear reminder that Jesus was there before the beginning, before creation. Again, a reminder that God is in control. What joy is Christ's here? As he looks to the cross, he's not grieving the cross. He's not, I mean, there is going to be a time when he's grieving, and we know it's not far from here, right? When he will sweat great drops of blood as he he begins to fathom and think about the agony, and not because of, I don't think it's so much because of the pain of the nails as the pain in the soul for the sin that he will bear on the cross the multitudes of sins, right? Of millions of people for for whom He is crucified, to save them from their sins, right? But that's not His prayer now. He's not grieving that. He's looking forward to that because He knows He's victorious over the world. I have overcome the world, so take heart and have joy like I have joy. See, what joy is Christ here as He looks to the cross... And what a wonderful Savior we have who prays here to the Father and seeks the glory of the Father as he himself will be glorified as he obeys the Father. And what joy and peace is ours when we trust in Christ fully. And when we trust in Christ fully, we too obey like Christ obeyed. And joy and peace to pray and rest in the certainty that God is in control will be ours because God will give it. And what joy and peace is ours in Christ because we know God through Christ, because we know his Son, the one whom he sent to be the sacrifice for our sins. And what joy and peace to obey each and every day, right? Joy and peace really wouldn't be real joy and peace if we didn't come, with, come up with obedience next, right? Because we are to take steps of obedience as we rest in his finished work, in his promises, knowing that God brings the victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if that same joy and peace that was Christ would be ours, we must trust Him. Right? Got to trust Him.